Doctor says, I have good news and bad news. The guy goes, well, Doc, give me the bad news first. Doctor says, well, your eyes are pretty much blind because of the cataracts. Um, your hips and your knees need major replacing surgery. Your spine is crooked. Uh, your lungs are no good because you've got pneumonia. Your skin, well, you've contracted leprosy. You've got the fevers due to malaria and you've got heart disease as well. Guy goes, okay, doc, what's the good news? Doctor says, well, the good news is your hearing is really good. I feel like that's a little bit like the Corinthian church. We're coming back to the book of 1 Corinthians. We started last year. We're continuing a few chapters this year. We're actually going to finish it next year. But we see in Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians, a very, very, very messy church, a very problematic church with probably one or two good things going for it. All right, there's some of the problems uh, that we've even seen up to now in 1 Corinthians, if you were with us last year. They had a problem with unity. They had lots of infighting, lots of disunity. They had a problem with immorality, uh, especially sexually. They're all over the place. Uh, they didn't understand key Christian things, Christian doctrines later on. Um, they'll even, some people will even deny that the resurrection is going to happen. They were worldly. They were ungodly. And they had a bad relationship with Paul, who was their founding pastor and friend. So almost everything that could go wrong in a church was going wrong. And that's what we find in the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul writes to them. And yet what's really surprising, though, is if you go right back to the earliest verses of 1 Corinthians, in the second verse, after Paul introduces himself, he calls these people, these Corinthian Christians, he calls them holy. In fact, the word he uses is saints. He calls them saints, which in some circles were only reserved for the you know, really holy people. But he calls them saints. It's astounding given the kind of people that we know they are. But that's a really important point because if you want to know the big idea of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, it has to do with that actually. Right? It has to do with the fact that we are all followers of Jesus by what Jesus has done, have become saints. And the key to their transformation and the key to our transformation is actually living out that identity as saints. All right? God has made you beloved, holy, washed people. And if you live that out, you will be changed. God wants all of us to be who we are. And so for the Corinthians and us, our identity is to come from being saints rather than come from being influenced by the world around us. And that'll impact our life together in the church and as a church. It'll have massive, massive implications. So that's sort of what 1 Corinthians is all about. We're going to dip back into it in chapter 7. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to read all of 7. That's why we didn't have a Bible reading before. So here's a good chance. If you don't yet have a Bible in front of you, you like the paper copies, we actually have a bunch of um, copies behind us. Just stick your hand up and Neville will bring you one. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And because it's such a long chapter, packed full of lots of stuff, I'm not going to obviously be able to talk through everything in detail. We're going to have a question and answer time at the end. So I'm going to preach. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to come back for a good 10 minutes of Q&A. All right. So if you have questions, Keep them in your mind. If I don't answer them during the sermon, please ask them afterwards. Okay, stick your hand up if you want a paper Bible. They're coming around. Otherwise, let me read 1 Corinthians 7, and then I'll pray. 1 Corinthians 7. Now for the matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. 
The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over it to his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you might devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has that gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He shouldn't become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He shouldn't become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she is not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they don't, those who mourn as if they didn't, those who are happy as if they weren't, those who buy something as if it weren't theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone's worried that he might not be acting honorably towards a virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. 
they should get married. But the man who has settled in matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, help me as I speak, especially uh, with a cold. Help me to be clear. Help me to get through it without... Um, coughing and spluttering too much, and we pray that we might ultimately hear what you have to say, even with so many things in this chapter and maybe maybe many questions in our minds. Help us to hear what you have to say to us as we meet with you today, by your Spirit, through your Word. Amen. Uh, grab your outline or on Zach Pages. This is the second last week we'll have Zach Pages, which is a bit sad, but um, I'm just going to be following through. So we're going to start with a bit of an, an overview. Um, You'll, you'll notice in chapter 7, the reason why we stopped at the end of chapter 6 is chapter 7 begins sort of a new section in this letter. It's a long letter, 1 Corinthians. In chapter 7, he begins to address matters that they wrote to him about. Now, we don't have the letter that they wrote to Paul. And so we've sort of got one side of a dialogue. We're only hearing one side of it. So there's a little bit that we can't be sure of, a lot of guessing work as to what issues they were raising and why they might have been raising it. What we do know is this chapter is obviously uh, raising issues that they might have master raised to Paul. It all has to do with marriage and singleness. So you'll notice he will apply this in terms of marriage and singleness a few times. He'll go from talking about married people, firstly in verses 1 to 7, all right, specifically sex within marriage. And then he'll switch over to talking about singles in verses 8 and 9, especially widows and whether they should remarry. And then in, in verses 10 to 16, he'll come back to married people, especially those who are married to unbelievers. And then really, 25 to 40, the big chunk at the end, he's coming back to deal with singles again, especially those who are engaged, and then widows he'll end with. So married singles, married singles. Now, we can only try and guess at the issues that were behind why they raised it and what they raised. There's probably two things that would help us in terms of the reasons why they might have raised it. Firstly is, I think Paul is just trying to clarify stuff. All right, making stuff clear. Why? You've got to remember, these were first-generation Christians. And I don't mean like some of your parents or some of you were the only first Christians in your whole family. I'm talking about these were first-generation Christians anywhere. Okay? First-generation Christians anywhere in the world. And they were first-generation Christians from an entirely non-Christian society. And they've had to rethink everything. So they, in the cosmopolitan city of Corinth, they were Roman with Greek influences, that had their own set of right and wrongs, their own set of acceptable versus unacceptable behaviors, their own views of marriage and sex and singleness and widowhood. And, and then Jesus comes along and everything gets turned around. All right? And, and so it's a little bit like the first time you switch from Windows to Mac, all right, or Android to Apple. You know, you do it and then you got to Google lots, right? What do I do with that? What do I do with this? And what happens with this? And it's clarifying you know, Paul, you mentioned that sex should be in marriage. Well, does it mean that in marriage it's better if I don't have sex very much with my wife? Do you see what I mean? You can understand that he's just, they're just having stuff clarified. So um, Paul is responding to them, but they're sort of responding to the gospel that they had heard from Paul. Another possible thing behind what they're raising is in verse 26, there's a mention of this present crisis. Now, we can only guess at what that is, but ancient historians and the most recent scholars have a lot of confidence that it probably means 
a pretty serious and commonly known now, we know about it now because it was in lots of literature of the ancient world around that time, including places like Corinth, that there was an empire-wide, a Roman empire-wide food shortage. All right? There was a massive grain shortage across the empire. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to us, but in the ancient world, shortage of grain led to social unrest, sometimes revolution, sometimes violence. Because imagine, not enough food, inflation goes right up, People can't feed their families, right? It's, it's a pretty uh, unstable situation, particularly for those with very little money. And so that might have been in the background in terms of how unstable society was due to this grain shortage. We'd gone on for a little while because of famine. So especially when it comes to Paul teaching about being single, uh, staying single in those verses, when, when he says in verse 26 and 27, if you're pledged to a woman... All right, what do you do if you're engaged? Well, maybe the, the, you know, the social unrest explains why he says, look, you know, don't change your circumstances. It's okay if you don't marry because there's stuff going on in the social sense that may actually make you delay what, what marriage is about. If you get married, if you have kids and the famine continues, you may not be able to feed them. Do you see what, what might be going on in the background? Now, the point I'm trying to make is there were context and Corinthian-specific issues, whether we're 100% certain about them, or we're just guessing at them. But anytime we come to any part of the Bible, it's always important to ask, what did it mean then? Yeah? Important rule of reading the Bible is not just to flop it open and say, okay, what is God saying to me now? Always ask the question, what did it mean then? And then to think of the bridge of what does it mean now? So there's a lot of stuff that meant something to them then, and understanding that We'll need to keep that in mind because what will end up happening is you may not be able to pull everything from this chapter as a direct application to us because the principles, the reasons, are often the more important things to get out of it. Do you see what I mean? Okay? So here's the plan. Um, I'm going to, in point number two of my talk, I'm going to firstly begin with a broad overview of what he says about marriage and singleness because they're the two things that I touched on. And then I'm going to take you to the heart of the passage, what I think is right at the core, that if you understand those verses, you'll understand the whole chapter. And that's verses 17 and 24, and then 29 to 31. That's my third point. And then I'll come back and apply it to us, again, on marriage and singleness. And then we'll come back for questions. All right? So here we go. So marriage and singleness, here's a summary. It's not specifics. Ask about the specifics later in Q&A. But what we'll see is that for both groups married and singles, if you kind of summarize all that Paul is saying here in this chapter, it's revolutionary stuff, all right? This is so opposite to how anyone in the Roman world thought, but also it's opposite to how a lot of the people in our world think today. So I want to show you how Jesus made a difference then and Jesus made a difference, makes a difference now. So firstly, what difference does Jesus, did Jesus make to marriage and singleness in the world that the Corinthians were in? First century, uh, first century AD. In the Roman world, life was very unjust, especially if you were a woman. It was a very patriarchal society. Patriarchy ruled by men. This was before feminism, before equality. Divorce and remarriage was really easy. All right? You could get married and divorced and married and divorced basically at a whim. And especially if you were male. You could dump a wife, get a new wife. Just got sick of her. The only exceptions to that for women were upper-class women. Every other class of women pretty much got treated badly. 
So for married men, it was okay for you to have lots of sex before marriage, lots of sex outside of your marriage while married. So if you went to see a prostitute, if you, and this is horrible, male uh, slave owners would often be expected to have sex with their slaves, right? That's called abuse. It's called rape, actually. But that happened a lot. And it wasn't considered adultery in most cases, unless it was with the wife of someone who was in the upper class. Do you see? It's very class society. Again, it's very unjust, very unequal, and applied differently to men and women, sexual ethics and so on. So you, you read these verses again, knowing that, and you see how revolutionary it is, right? Because patriarchy is totally undermined, isn't it? Like those first seven verses, what he says about marriage and the responsibility of husbands to wives and wives to husbands, you notice how everything he says about husbands, he says about wives. It's completely mutual. It's completely egalitarian, equal. You are mutually obligated, mutually uh, faithful, expected to be responsible to each other. And the verses 3 and 4, it lays the same responsibility on husbands and wives. You have each other's bodies as one flesh, right? Now, let me just, as an aside, say, you cannot possibly, from these verses, unfortunately people do, use it as an excuse to force sex on your spouse. And I know it's a bit one-sided, but it's true. Statistically, it's more likely to happen by the husband on the wife, all right? This is not an excuse for forcing sex on your wife because the Bible says here that she is to perform her marital duties to you. That's actually called rape and it's sexual abuse and it's wrong. And the reason why you can't see that in these verses, firstly, is because how mutual it is. Everything he says about the husband, he says of the wife. But secondly, if in verse 5 to pause on sex within marriage has to happen by mutual consent, you see it there, verse 5? then actually to have sex also needs mutual consent, all right? You've got to both agree to it. Right? It's not about forcing each other. Otherwise, it would be abuse. So let me just say that because it's important, isn't it? So marriage was completely revolutionized by this. Singleness was no less revolutionary, this kind of teaching. In the ancient world, remember, uh, firstly, let me clarify, in the Bible's teaching, again, sex is a great thing. It's a gift from God, but it belongs only in marriage, okay? That's pretty clear in the Bible. And, and sex within marriage is not just about having kids. It's also the relational glue that enhances, binds marriage and increases intimacy. It's also a way in these verses, this is one of the places it says, sex within marriage also helps each other avoid sexual sin outside of marriage. Now, I say that it's important because it means that when we're talking about singleness here, we're talking about celibate singleness. You know what celibate means, right? It means that you're not having sex. Right? If you're single in the Bible, and that includes if you're engaged, includes if you're dating, if, as long as you're not married, you're single, then you're expected to be celibate. And here we see this view of singleness that is so revolutionary. Because not only is it saying that celibate singleness you can put up with, it's actually saying it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's even desirable. In some circumstances, you might even choose it, is what Paul is saying here. And you've got to remember, in the ancient world, if you're single, then you can't have children, or at least legitimately, you can't pass on your family name. 
you won't have kids to work in the home and help you earn money. You won't have security in the future. There's a lot that you can't do. And yet here, Paul teaches that singleness might be a good thing. Look how revolutionary that was in the ancient world. Well, what, Je- what difference does Jesus make now? Because it wasn't only then, but now that this stuff really goes against culture. And I want to say it's equally revolutionary today. See, more and more so, we are not in a Christian society, are we? It's very, we're not. We're very secular. And while thankfully we're not patriarchal anymore, our views on marriage and sex and divorce is actually more and more like the pagan Roman world. Take divorce for it. I mean, you can no-fault divorce pretty easily nowadays. And so God's view on marriage is revolutionary for us because he is saying marriage is not for me. It's not for me to gratify my own selfish desires. That's not the prime purpose of marriage. It's not because I fall in love and therefore I need to marry. And if I fall out of love, I need to change wives. And No, no, no. Marriage is monogamous. All right? Just the two of you. It's faithful. It's sacrificial. And except when it's so broken that you can't fix it, and that does happen, with abuse or adultery or abandonment. There's one example here later on, and he talks about abandonment. Except in those circumstances, and you can't fix it or reconcile, marriage is also for life. All right? And so this is revolutionary, even in today's standards, about marriage. So in my marriage, I am to love and serve Karen through thick and thin. And especially here is applying to sex within marriage. Even sex, that wonderful gift of God for us in marriage, well, that's not for me. Even that's not for me. It's a way that I serve my spouse. That, that is, it's a very strange worldview, isn't it? It's not what we teach about sex in the world out there. So to the married, let me just quickly say this. Don't look for sex or sexual gratification outside of your marriage. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? Pornography is particularly a problem because it's so accessible. I want to say again, porn is not just sinful because it's, it's lustful, but porn will actually take away your ability to love and serve your spouse in your marriage, in sex. Because porn is essentially selfish sex, isn't it? As I look at this image, the person becomes an object. And if I take that attitude into my marriage, that's not the kind of other person-centered, servant-type sex that verses 1 to 7 talks about. Porn will only destroy sex within marriage. And the other thing to probably mention here is this. Sex, and especially withholding sex from your spouse, because sometimes people do that, withholding sex should never be used as a tool to manipulate your spouse. All right? That does happen, you know. All right, if you want to have sex with me, you've got to do this. I'm not ready for sex, but only if. All right, sex is not, again, it's not a tool for manipulation. It's not a tool for selfishness. It's a way for husbands to serve wives, for wives to serve husbands. Now, it may be that in some marriages, in your marriage, sex may be difficult, perhaps unenjoyable, perhaps even painful. And can I just say that when there is not abuse involved, okay, it's really important, when there's no abuse involved, this is something that you ought to talk openly about with each other. It's a gift that God gives to you. And if you need to get professional help, don't be afraid to get it. 
It's part of how God provides for you in your marriage, sex within marriage. Okay, how about singleness? How is singleness revolutionary to today? Well, it's probably even more obvious. Celibate singleness, like anyone really believes that today, right? Whereas this is saying, no, celibate singleness is not only entirely possible, it's perhaps even desirable in some circumstances. And so contrary to our culture, this chapter teaches that you are not, I am not defined by my sexuality. I am not defined by my ability to express my sexuality. That if I'm unable to express my sexual desires, that doesn't make me less human. That's not what's been communicated out there, is it? Right? The message now is, unless every single person can be true to themselves in terms of their sexuality or gender, they are somehow oppressed and less human. That is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that your identity doesn't come from your sexuality. See, it's baffling to the world that a Christian could be single and celibate. That even same-sex attracted Christians, because they want to obey God, will choose to be celibate and single. And that's entirely possible because of the Bible. Christians, I think, especially on singleness, we need to fight the cultural's narrative, culture's narrative, because celibate singleness is such a difficult thing that no one really accepts outside of life in Jesus. So here is where I think the whole church, and particularly married Christians, we need to have a key role to play in this, and understanding how difficult this is for our single brothers and sisters. And I don't just mean people who are never married, people who also become divorce for one reason or another, and also people who become widowed or widowed. See, it's hard in our culture for singles, even harder in churches. And so married people within churches, that includes me and some of you here, we need to work out how we can be loving and sensitive, how we can love and care for the singles among us. We, we need to enfold them and encourage them, give them lots of our family because there is a greater family than our own nuclear family. And let me just say, we haven't done this really well. I, don't, I mean, general churches don't do this well, but we haven't done this very well at Southwest. It's been a great shame that we've lost singles because of that. I just think we need to do better at that. And, and you married people, I think we need to work at how we can do better. In that. I don't have a lot of answers, but there are certainly a lot of people. Singles, you can help us work out how we can do better. All right? So... That is the kind of difference Jesus makes in marriage and singleness. My next point, why? We're going to go to the heart of the passage. Why does Jesus make such a difference, both then and now? And as I said, the guts of the passage is in verses 17 to 24. You get this and you will see the whole passage make sense. Now, the message of 17 to 24, I won't read it all out again. It's pretty clear because he says it three times. All right? In fact, let's go to the third time he says it in 24. Brothers and sisters... Each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. He says it in 17, he says it in 20, he says it in 24. Three times, it's got to be important. His point is, be content to remain as you are. Now, this is not an absolute because he does say when it comes to slaves as well as singles in verse 21, if you're a slave and you gave in your freedom, that's fine, go for it. And then as singles, especially if you're... Uh, if, you, if you get married later on as a single, or if you get remarried as a widow, in verses 28 and 38 and 39, he also says, that's okay, you've not sinned. Okay, So it's not an absolute, 
But the general principle he wants to come get across is we should be content to remain as we are. Now, why is that such an issue here? Well, the key is there. Remain as you are, but notice this next bit. It's there in verse 24. Just as they were when God called them, right? Remain as you are, just as when God called you. So what does that mean? Now, calling here is not your calling to your situation in life, like your job or your career. Sometimes we think of calling that way. God has called me to be an accountant or a lawyer, or or God has even here called me to be single, or God's called me to be married. If that were the case, to change your circumstance would be to go against your calling. That would be a problem, right? No, no, he's saying stay as you are when God called you. Right? Remain as you are in whatever circumstances when God called you. So the calling itself can't be the circumstance. So what is the calling? The calling here, as it is with the New Testament, is actually about belonging to Jesus. It's basically being saved. God calls you to become a Christian. And God calls you to grow as a Christian, to become holy. It's salvation, it's sanctification. And here especially it has to do with salvation. Remember, these were first-generation Christians. God called them to belong to Him. And because that calling, anyone who's become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it's happened not because of something you do, but it's happened entirely because of what God has done through Jesus for you. It's by grace. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to make you more called or less called. That's a really important point. See, if you change your marital status, or even if you change your job or your career, in, its, uh, in and of itself won't make you more or less pleasing to God. Because your calling was by grace. Jesus has already made you right with God, as much as it can possibly be right with God, when He called you. So you should be content to remain as you are when God called you, when God saved you. See, perhaps behind the Corinthians' issue about marriage and singleness is that they misunderstood what life-pleasing to God was. This is a point of clarification, probably. So you got married people wanting to act as if they were unmarried. Right? Whether it's, I'm okay, I'm okay to have sex outside of marriage, like when I was a single person. Or even, maybe it's better that I don't have sex at all, even within marriage, because somehow God thinks that's more pleasing to Him. And whether it's singles, engaged or widows, widow, wondering, well, maybe I'll be more pleasing to God if I now get married. Maybe the married life is a better way to live out my calling than staying single. And in both cases, Paul's answer is, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand the calling. Remain as you are when God called you. Right? Because God's calling is by grace, and nothing you do makes you more or less right with Him. Now, this is a really important point, of course, that Martin Luther discovered or rediscovered in the Protestant Reformation. Remember, the Catholics taught in the Middle Ages, still today, really, that if you are called to priesthood and also singleness, celibate priesthood, that was a higher calling. And Luther, because he understood Paul, said, no, 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 look, whether you are married or single, whether you are dating or engaged, whether you're widowed, whether you're employed, unemployed, in sickness and in health, whatever situation you are in, that is your arena to live out your calling. That's your arena to live out a life pleasing to God. Our tendency, isn't it, is to make excuses based on our circumstances. Have you ever done that? I have. How would you fill in the blank? Or how have you filled in this blank before? If I was only blank, then I could blank. 
If only I had a full-time job, I could then start being generous with my money. If only my kids were older, then I could maybe go to church every week. If only I was married to the right person, then I could really serve God. Well, this understanding of being content to remain as you are, because in that area is where you serve and honor God, well, that blows all these excuses out of the water, right? Because where you are, what situation you're in, in sickness or in health, married or single, that is your arena that God has for you to serve Him and live out your calling, all right? There's another reason that Jesus makes all the difference. And there's another set of key verses, verses 29 to 31. Have a look there. We will read these verses out again. 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they don't. Those, um, those who mourn as if they didn't. Those who are happy as if they weren't. Those who buy something as if it weren't theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now, these verses really summarize the motivation that explains everything. I mean, why is it that my marriage can really not be about me and gratifying me? Why is it that singleness may even be a good thing, even though I really, really want to get married? The answer is in those verses. It's because this life ain't it. Because, you see, we are all travelers passing through. Because we are temporary residents heading home. Because we are pilgrims on a journey to heaven. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Not just in marriage and singleness, but particularly when it comes to marriage and singleness. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, was engaged to Maria von Wedemeyer when he was arrested and imprisoned in 1943. Now we have letters. It's a whole book published. Love letters from cell 92 or something like that. He wrote from these letters we know that they had a wonderful godly love story, a beautiful relationship. They never got married though because on April 9, 1945, just before the end of World War II, he was hanged at dawn by the Nazis. And so he never got to see his fiance and never got to marry her again. Now, if we have a this-worldly view of life, and that is a tragedy, is it not? I mean, what could be more tragic than that? Two lovers, separated, unable to marry, never able to enjoy everything that they're longing and the love, love letters that express that longing, you know? But if you have the Bible's view of life, the verses 39 to 41 view of life, this isn't a tragedy at all. Because heaven radically transforms both marriage and singleness and what we think of it. You see, our destiny, if you're a follower of Jesus, your destiny is marriage, but it's a heavenly marriage. It's marriage to Jesus, the Bible says, as his people. That's the real marriage. There's no more human marriages in heaven. That'll be superseded. The only marriage that matters is what we're all heading to, and it's marriage with Jesus in intimacy forever in heaven. Uh, John Piper, when he writes about uh, Bonhoeffer, he says, this is not a tragedy because Bonhoeffer skipped the shadow and went straight to the reality. That's why it's not a tragedy. Yeah, sure, he skipped marriage, but he went to the greater marriage straight away. And Piper's book, by the way, where it comes from, This Momentary Marriage, good book, right? This Momentary Marriage, really summarizes it because that's what marriage is. 
It's just a picture. You see, whether you are married or single, everything finds its meaning in what's coming in heaven. See, if you're married, then the Bible says your marriage is a picture of the greater marriage, and that's where you're heading. If you're single, then the reason why you can be single and content is because you're also waiting for a greater marriage. You're not missing out. Do you see what I mean? For both married and singles, the greater marriage in heaven defines everything. And so our attitude to all that we have now is as verses 20, uh, 39 to 41 says, 29 to 31 says, it's that it's not ours to keep. When I was a much younger guy, I was uh, learning to drive manual. I learned how to, I got my license on auto, and back then you could just switch to manual anytime. I was learning to drive a manual car, and um, I was just learning when my friend who has a sport, had a sports car was going overseas for two, two weeks, and he lent me his sports car to drive and to get better at driving manual, all right? So I went from a 1.8 liter hatchback to a three liter V6. And it was great because you can't stall those things quite as easily. Now, I loved it. I loved driving a sports car. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't mine to keep, all right? So I used it. I learned manual on it. I looked cool for a couple of weeks. I loved it, but I didn't hold on to it. I couldn't hold on to it. I didn't get engrossed in it because I had to give it back. And that's the point of verses 29 to 31. Every single thing that you and I have in life is on loan. Because this life ain't it. It's on loan. So we're to use it. We're to enjoy it. But don't hang on to it and don't be engrossed by it. See, even if you are married and you love being married, well, guess what? That's not yours to keep either. It's just a pointer. It's just a shadow. It's a tool to serve God. And so strangely enough, it's the same with singleness. It's also temporary. It's also a pointer. It's also a shadow to the greater marriage that you will all experience. And singleness is a very useful tool to serve God while you're passing through to heaven. So let me apply. Application for both married and singles, right? If the main idea is be content to remain as you are, live out your calling where you are now because you're all passing through, this life ain't it. If that's the big idea, then I want to apply it just in a simple way for both married and singles. And, it's, it, and I've, I've already used it. The application is simply don't make excuses. Whether you're married or singles, don't make excuses based on circumstances, all right? If you're married, God has called you not only to be holy and committed in your marriage, but to serve Him in and through your marriage in all the different stages of life and family life that that might be. So don't make excuses. If your marriage is not the way that you want it to be, you might even think, I have a pretty crummy marriage. It's not great. It's certainly not what I want to be. It's not even what God wants it to be. Well, you know what? Don't use anything as an excuse. Because often we can use our careers as an excuse. Oh, my marriage is put on hold because I need to pursue the career. Or I need to pursue these particular you know, life goals first. And maybe I'll work on my marriage. No, no, no excuses. And even, I think from this passage, even your church ministries should not be an excuse. Put my marriage on hold because I need to serve the Lord. Too many pastors and missionaries do that. And that is no excuse either. Because God is served in and through your situation right now. In marriage. So no excuses. Fix your marriage. Get help if you need to. But don't make excuses. And also, don't let your marriage be an excuse 
for ungodly behavior, of course. Like, oh, if you were married to my husband, you would understand why I get angry so often. Oh, I don't get enough sex in marriage, and that's why I can be a little bit unfaithful. No, 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 no excuses. And don't use your family or marriage as an excuse not to serve God in the best way you can, given the stage of your life you are now. Now, I know when you're particularly with kids at certain ages, it's going to look different. It's going to be different directions of energy and time, and that's the whole point about being single here in this passage. All right? The advantages are there, real advantages. So I'm not saying it's going to look the same for married people all across the different stage of life, but don't use it as an excuse not to prioritize God where you are. Because I think in our day and age, and especially in our church, it's really easy to idolize marriage, idolize our families, so that we protect it and we think that that takes priority even over our commitments to the greater family, God's family, church. So I always irk a little bit when I hear newlyweds or people about to get married say, in our first year of marriage, I'm going to take a year off doing any ministry so we can get to know each other better. And I'm kind of like, what? Isn't that a great way of getting to know each other? Do ministry together. Or, or, or family saying, you know what? Because the kids, they've got lots of stuff on Saturday, sport and tutoring and all that. We really only have Sundays as our family day. So we're just going to skip church or at least make church less regular. Right? We can actually end up idolizing and protecting our marriages and families. And we use that as an excuse not to serve God. And so don't do that. What about singles? Well, don't let singleness be an excuse either, yeah? It's okay to want to get married. And it's okay to get married when that opportunity comes. As long as you remember that changing your circumstance won't change God's view of you, and probably more importantly, won't actually change you. Really important for singles. You see, if you marry and you're not already content with who you are in Jesus you will bring that discontentment into your marriage. And it will hurt your marriage. Because no marriage partner can fill that hole that only Jesus can fill. And to expect a spouse to fill that hole that Jesus only can fill will crush them, because they're not Jesus, and will embitter you. doesn't mean you have to have everything figured out before you're married. But also don't idolize marriage, because that's not the solution to all the discontentment that you might already have. So while you're single, and by the way, half of us married people will be single again, right? One of the spouse will die first and you'll be widowed or widowed. Reality. While you are single or if you become single, serve the Lord with all your might, with all the advantages it brings. Verses 32 to 35 are true. It's not saying that singles serve God in a way that's more pleasing to God. It's not a qualitative thing, but it is certainly a quantitative thing. Singles can do it with unique opportunities, with unique freedoms that married people can't. Just ask any young parent here, right? How do you get to church even when one child is sick and vomiting in the car on the way? Like, it's hard. Right? These are practical things. And while you're single, you get the advantage of not having it. If you want to go on Summerfest, and take a week off to go to Summerfest. As a single person, you'll just do it. If, you got, if you're married with kids, I still encourage you to do it, but you have to consult each other and talk to your kids. And You know what I mean? Different. So if you get married, great. If not, keep going. 
Don't let your singleness be an excuse for you to be selfish with your time and your money and your relative freedom. And don't let your desire to get married be an excuse for not dealing with issues of discontentment or for you to put your life on hold until you find a partner. All right, let's get the band up. We're going to sing a response song, and then I'll come back up for Q&A. So.